and welcome to Here's Where It Went Wrong, the podcast where every week we have on one of our favorite comedians to talk about one of their favorite things, and we trace its history to find out exactly where it all went off the rails. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Andrew Nadeau. Andrew, who are we talking to today? Today, we are joined by Lisa Curry. She has a fantastic podcast called Long Story Long and a new album out, Alive for a While. She's also a writer on The Jim Jeffrey Show. Also, quick sidetrack, I love the Michael Buffer intro you did on the Hello This Time. I'm a big fan of that. We should keep that. Yeah, yeah. I'm 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 doing that from now I on. Know. I I've been listening to a lot more podcasts. I'm like, this is such a better, less jarring way to go yeah. into <laughs> the start of an episode than my loud, grating voice. <laughs> it's fantastic. So yeah, we're we're doing by Lisa Curry. So good. I, it's fantastic every time I get to talk with her. So she wanted to talk today about Jimmy Hoffa and the labor union and the labor movement in America. It's got a fascinating history, a lot of depth, a lot of murder. Murder comes up a good amount. A lot of murder. A lot of we, we dipped into some conspiracies, guys. And, and you know what? If you're not into conspiracies, it might not be the episode for you, but I think you'll like it. I think you'll enjoy it. Either way. I would say listen anyway, because I'm not super into conspiracies, but I was enthralled. Lisa can deliver a point like nobody else. Uh, The man disappeared. We know that. So we got to talk a little bit about what we think happened if we're going to focus an episode on him. Yeah, we we didn't get into any too crazy. And I mean, I just I just love the history on this one. This is a movement that is important in America now and always has been. It was fantastic to get into and so much fun. Oh, for sure. And by the way, our conspiracies didn't do anything that Martin Scorsese didn't say. So. So, you know, we're on the same level of conspiracy as, as the Martin Irishman. Scorsese. Yeah, we're doing fine. Yes. <laughs> so there we go. We're fine. But yeah, this episode was a whole lot of fun. I love Lisa. We planned like six more episodes with her throughout the right. recording of this one. <laughs> we're booked. We are booked through June just with Lisa episodes after this. So guys, I hope you'll stick around and listen. Yeah, let's get into it. We're here today with Lisa Curry. Lisa, thanks so much for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. So today you wanted to talk about labor unions. Yeah, it's funny you say today because that's all I want to talk about every day. <laughs> <laughs> this was a great topic. This is obviously something that's, that's been in the news a lot. It also has, of course, a, a great history. Mm-hmm. And and we've got a, a lot to get into. And then, of course, uh, Jimmy Hoffa later, too. We're going to dive into pretty deep there. But this was a great topic. Why did you want to get into this specifically? Because I was trying to think of like <laughs> just my genuine interests um, right. <laughs> and the things that I and I, I don't I have a, I do have a hard time remembering details and I, you know, like things go into my brain and then they just scramble and then it's new information when it comes out pretty much. Um, (laughs) But I was like, the two things I read about and enjoy the most are like Jimmy Hoffa and the Vietnam war. And I'm like, there is no, where did it go wrong with the Vietnam war? Because the whole fucking thing was garbage. The whole thing was bad. Top, Top to bottom. It was bad. Good music. That's it. <laughs> we should have just done a thing on Vietnam War music. We should have done a thing on Creedence Clearwater Revival and be like, where it went wrong, it was all written because of the Vietnam War. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. I would listen to that show. That's a good show. Yeah. And you know what? And all of our dads would enjoy it as well. Yeah. (laughs) Personally, I have a World War II dad. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> some people have Civil War dads. Some people have Vietnam dads. Dad, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Civil War dad. Classic. So, no, this this was a, a great one to talk about. Obviously, there was a lot of research here. And it's it's been in the news a lot in, in different forms now where it's just a constant discussion of, as you realize what we're doing is not working, <laughs> right? I mean, I feel like that's the general appeal amongst workers, that that there's obviously uh, just this, this massive level of unbalance but between uh, employers and workers. And this is, despite the fact this has been going on for like 200 years, this is not something that we have a hold on <laughs> anywhere near the level we should. And it's like as hard as we fight to keep unions going and, you know, fight for workers, there's just as many people are fighting back and trying to misinform people. And, you know, what I never understand is when corporations somehow convince poor people or like struggling people that poor people and struggling people don't deserve a fair wage. It's like, and then, yes. and then when they get in the fight against, you know, uh, unionizing, I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? Are you serious? In general, the person that has to give up money if you win the argument is not going to be on your side yeah. of the argument. <laughs> <laughs> but they have more money for advertising against right. your good yes, position. Exactly. Which, that's where we're at. <laughs> well, so let's get into the history of this a little bit because it, it has obviously a, a deep one. So it was the Industrial Revolution that really began to grow the labor movement in America, but it has earlier origins. Like in the late uh, colonial period, there was a developed artisan trades market, and this is where things started to prevent. But even before that, it's not as unionized as we consider it today. But the earliest recorded strike in America took place in 1636, and this was by fishermen off the coast of Maine. And this this was not the pivotal moment that you would kind of expect it to be for being the first one, because most strikes in the revolutionary period were local, temporary, and isolated. They rarely ended in the formation of groups or laborers for negotiation purposes. It was just kind of like, can we fix this immediately problem we have right now, and then just kind of like all move on. <laughs> so the beginning of more official trade unions doesn't begin until 1794 with the formation of the Federal Society of Journeymen Cordwainers, uh, Cordwainers being a uh, Makers. I assume our audience knows that, but just in case. <laughs> yes, in, there's, there's in, many of them in the audience, I'm sure. We have a very strong cord waner following. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and shout out to you guys. Thank you for donating to our Patreon. <laughs> and yeah, th- this was back in, in Philadelphia. And what was interesting at the time was journeyman now is is used as a more ubiquitous term but then it was it was very specific journeyman meant uh, that you had basically finished your apprenticeship and you could work but either assisting or under the supervision of others so this is a really specific group that's banded together saying like we have people above us where we should be getting paid what we're worth at this point we've finished the work to get here and this is still not happening and this really was a significant moment in the development of unions because after this point local craft unions continue to develop in cities. They, they work to establish reasonable fees by publishing lists of prices for their work and defending their trades against the diluted and, and cheap labor. I just gotta say, everything you're saying is good, and I hate that it's controversial. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is because this is this feels so basic it's hey how about we just get paid enough to live because we're working at this period in time 12 hours a day six days a week which is so bananas and i think that like i know people now in modern history i personally know people that they're like anti-union and i'm like do you have any fucking idea like do you know where the 40 hour work week came from 
Are you are you like Saturdays? <laughs> right. It's like it's also like why uh, again back to just what I was saying earlier. Like why would you fight for the company? Fuck them. You know Jeff Bezos is a gajillionaire, and it's he would have nothing if it weren't for the workers. So it's it's like right. you you have to take care of them because they're doing all the work. He's doing he's doing literally nothing. Right. <laughs> Well, and and I, I think there is very much this this approach of, well, like, yeah, but when I'm a billionaire, I don't want to give up my money. It's like the hillbilly secret or something. It's like, that's not right. going to happen, guys. <laughs> and also, even if it does, don't you want to use that money to help people? There are things you can do with this money. And I mean, I, I get it. I would love to be a billionaire. And if people didn't need help, yeah, I'm going to spend that money on some dumb shit. Uh, but as being that they do, it just... Just the mindset of I'm going to hurt myself now in case later on there is a chance where I have everything feels like a terrible approach. Yeah. Andrew, I'm so excited for you to write a joke so good you make a billion dollars. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Like we know the field that we chose here. This is yeah. it's not going to end <laughs> yeah. with us being fantastically wealthy. Speak for yourself. I'm, I'm going to write that joke. When's killing it. And yeah. then I'm going to crush people <laughs> under my boots yeah. so hard. <laughs> <laughs> well, and yeah, I mean, this is a thing currently being discussed with, with Amazon because people brought up again the treatment and like Amazon UK just tweeted out, you don't actually believe that, do you? And it's like, dude, we have articles and accounts and, and personal anecdotes of the experience saying this is true. But Amazon wants to be like, no, Jeff Bezos says it's a lie. Jeff Bezos yeah. is it on the floor. Jeff Bezos doesn't see what's happening. It wasn't like one report from your crazy aunt right. Trish who's like <laughs> a known liar. You know, this is like yeah. right. multiple reports from multiple people. I'm really excited because in, um, I can't remember the town, just outside of Atlanta, I believe, in Georgia, there, Amazon workers there are voting on unionization. The voting ends tomorrow, I believe. Right. So I hope, I hope they get it. Right. And there's also the factory in Bessemer, Bessemer, that's Alabama, what it is. right? Yeah. Oh, that, wait. That's it. I was saying Atlanta, Georgia, you said Bessemer, Bessemer, Alabama, Alabama yeah. which is where it is. And I don't know why I came up with Atlanta. This is the thing with me. Like, I'm like, I barely, I know the facts. I read them and then they go into my brain <laughs> and then... <laughs> <laughs> my okay, brain ta- turns them into marbles or something <laughs> well here's the quick tangent for how i'm able to remember that so uh-huh. <laughs> uh you guys at home can't see this but i have a giant alabama blanket yeah. <laughs> behind me to muffle sound i went to the college and my roommates had this fun habit of saying hey when let's go get some food and i'd get into the car with them and then they would drive me two hours to bessemer alabama <laughs> to get drive through and then just angrily take photos of me at different locations in Bessemer <laughs> that they could then be like, this is when outside the courthouse in Bessemer. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just angry eating fries because posing for these photos was the only way they would take me home. And that's they really tricked funny. me with it more than once. And that's a deep shame that I carry around with me. But that's I'll really never funny. forget Bessemer. And it, when it's in the news, I remember it. <laughs> I think also I grew up in Indiana, so I'm like everything south of me is one state and it's Georgia and that's it. (laughs) I'm like, there's Atlanta and then some other bullshit. Who cares? You know, (laughs) 
was this Jay? No, Andrew, it wasn't. It wasn't Jay Jordan. It was my much dumber roommates uh, that were doing this to me. <laughs> see, here's the thing. I figured like Jay Jordan had to be smart enough to pull this off multiple times. It's like, oh, yeah, I could see Jay doing that. <laughs> no, Jay could have tricked me to do it more than twice. It would be mostly just like, hey, Wynn, I have a trick for, to get abs. You want to get into this car? And I follow him. <laughs> that man is ridiculous. <laughs> Jay, or we got to get Jay back on here. That one was a lot of fun. <laughs> So, yeah, but this is a big thing in the news right now because it is insane that Amazon does not have a union. The the size of this company, the amount of money Jeff Bezos has, that, I mean, just sitting there, he's going to make a million dollars in minutes. Yeah. And the fact that there is not just a, a systemized method to ensure that the workers are not starving. It, one of those things was like, how how is this not a thing in reality? You know, yeah. like, I don't understand how we reached a point where this doesn't already exist. You know, I think the basic line shouldn't even be like you were saying, like, they should be able to, they shouldn't be starving or they should be able to take care of themselves. And it's like, people should be able to have more than that. They should be able yeah, to enjoy their, their lives. Life. There's like, there's such this weird mentality in this country of like, if you if you ever go on a vacation, you are it's undeserved and you are lazy and you are not working hard enough. And it's like, what the fuck? No, that's what yeah, life right. should be, <laughs> you know? Right. And like, it's not that I enjoy paying taxes by any means, mm -mm. but I mind where my taxes go far more than I mind that I'm paying taxes. If you said you're putting this money towards and it's going to go towards education, it's going towards helping unhoused people. Absolutely. I'm if, if you know, I, if when I have thankfully enough to give away, sometimes I would love to be a part of that. When I don't, please stop taking my money. But <laughs> that I it's really just about the fact that, yeah, we, we actually do have systems that could be easily implemented here that would allow us to help people. But it's it's going to places that I strongly disagree with. So let, let's back up a second to get some of more of the history to how with because amazingly, this is still improved. This is still better <laughs> than uh -huh. it was before. So in 1827, the Mechanics Union of Trade Associations in Philadelphia, Philly had uh, had a lot to do with this, began and central labor bodies began uniting craft unions within a single city. And this was also something that became an issue for a number of years was that there was a, a distinction between skilled and unskilled labor. And obviously still an, an issue now with uh, just the consideration that there is labor that is unskilled, that the, the, all of this takes effort. Keep this insular. They wanted this to, this to be uh, a union for those in the craft industry and for those that have you know basically completed an apprenticeship and are working in a skilled trade. So with in 1852, with the creation of the International Typographical Union, national unions began to form these spread across America and often then Canada, which is why international was regularly part of the title. Though this is taking place at the height of the Industrial Revolution, with factories continuing to be built and developed across America, workers were not part of these trade union developments because they were not classified as skilled workers. And this kept it from developing far longer than it should. So the fight for fair work practices was a fight for basic rights of the stage. This is relatively early after the American Revolution. And these ideals of the revolution of all men are created equal are still being championed. But the disparity between those in power and the workers makes it clear that all are not being seen as being created equal. And there is this strong pushback of, you just said, guys, you just said we were going to be equal. How are we not working harder to make this right? Yeah, the, the step up here was like, you don't work 72 hours anymore and you can't put small children into the machines. 
And like those were like the big wins. Those were the victories. Those were the big pushes was that, that, that no child labor. My parents missed that one. That What did you do? They'd have you do as a kid. My parents owned a business when I was a kid. So my I think that they only had four kids so that they had four people to work there. <laughs> <laughs> sure. No, that's fair. That's fair. What was, what was the job? What, what were you working as a child? Well, when I was little, my parents owned a biker bar and then they sold that and bought, which, I mean, they sold their portion of it. My family still owns it. And then they bought a marina, which was like a humongous undertaking. It was like 10 acres. That's a giant undertaking. Yeah. And and for all of us to have gone in it blind, like without ever, you know, having experience in that field before to just jump in and own this giant business. So yeah, hours and hours and hours of child labor. You know what you and your siblings should have done? All four of you should have worked together and formed some sort of group that could have argued for your yeah. face. Right. <laughs> ironically, like my dad, uh, I mean, I, I was taught to be pro-union since I was a kid because my dad's whole side of the family are union iron workers. And my dad took me to a union rally when I was in like fourth or fifth grade or something. Your dad rules. Go on. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, we should have unionized my dad. Maybe maybe they would have respected that and started paying us. Who knows? <laughs> exactly. He would have acquiesced to your demands. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's like, well, then if you're a union, OK. Obviously, someone owns the marina. Mm-hmm. I had never considered that a person owns a marina. Yeah. <laughs> it was one of those like, oh yeah, of course that has to be someone owning it and working it. But like, I don't have a boat. This was not something that I've, I've had to consider in the past. So thank you uh, and your, <laughs> your siblings <laughs> yeah. for keeping this marina in tip top shape. <laughs> Andrew, if you make more anti-union friends, you'll know more people with boats. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, this is true. This is absolutely true. Let's talk about these two specific groups that started developing in the same time period. You had the National Labor Union and the Knights of Labor. National Labor Union launched in 1866. The Knights of Labor, this is one of my favorites, because they began as a secret society of tailors in 1869, which was not a thing I would have thought you had to keep secret, but they were (laughs) serious about it. (laughs) How did they get business? It's so fun. It reminds me when I was reading through the bullet points you sent me in the research, it it made me think of the Freemasons. Very much. (laughs) But Justice Taylor's. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) No, that was it. That was that was what they were supposed to be. They were were supposed to be this this uh, internal secret society that they actually did keep strict rules on on secrets. So they eventually had to break when they became a union force. Yeah. They're like, this is a needle. This is a thimble. Don't tell a soul. (laughs) (laughs) All these people have secret identities working other jobs. Just to hide the fact that they're actually tailors. Yeah. <laughs> well, and they, they were keeping it secret. They were maintaining this. It was only that like once the worker militancy rose towards the end of the 70s, and especially after the Great Railroad Strike in 1878, that the Knights membership sharply increased. By 1886, they went from a secret society of, of a couple tailors to 700,000 members. Which, and it's only like around this point, they said, guys, you know what? Maybe we shouldn't keep this secret. Yeah. You know what they say? Two people can keep a secret, <laughs> but 700,000 people. Yeah. yeah, it was this group that had put the, the focus. I mean, as this was discussed before, but but they had the heavy focus on um, specific goals. The eight-hour workday, abolition of child labor, equal pay for equal work, and uh, political reforms, which included the graduated income tax. They were also unique because they were vertically organized, which was not really standard at the time. Each aspect included all workers in a given industry, regardless of trade. And they also accepted workers of all skill levels, as well as men and women. But, you know, racism was 
still just the standard play here. So it wasn't until 1883 that they included black people. And even then they were segregated. And this was brought up in another issue. And it's a tactic that's still being used by those in power today, which is just get poor people to blame each other. And it is remarkably effective, uh, so much so that the Knights even supported the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which was a law restricting immigration. At this point, the Chinese population was 0.002% of America. But Congress actually passed the act because they had convinced Americans that uh, the Chinese were stealing their jobs. It was like, there are like four of them, guys. They can't, they can't be stealing your jobs. This is, this is not their fault. But th- this was still enough that the Knights supported it. But the Knights of Labor and the NLU had different goals. The Knights were working towards a cooperative commonwealth rather than a higher wage as, as the focus, and were appealing to multiple levels of worker rather than just wage workers. And they also disliked the use of striking, although they did it on, on occasion. So these became a, a way to fight on two separate fronts for the quality of life and workers' rights, as well as fair pay. I'm just breaking for a minute. You guys can keep talking. I, oh. <laughs> I realize I'm going to lose my voice by the end if I keep this going. No, I'm super into it. I'm super into it. I'm still loving the Knights of Labor just purely as a name. Yeah. It's so much, yeah. It, it really it was a fantastic name. It sounds like it's name. such a high title for, like, uh, right. relax. Your workers, okay? Like, no, if, if the queen dubbed you that, you would believe it. You would think that was yeah, a real thing. Absolutely. It's like, you could give anyone a title. I, I th- This also reminds me, like, in high school, I remember I was, like, working some shit job. And I told my dad, I was like, ooh, I got promoted. And he goes, did they get, raise your pay? And I was like, no. He's like, then you didn't get promoted. Right. <laughs> He's like, what are you talking about? Who gives a fuck what they call you? You can make something up. And I was like, oh, ooh. Yeah. <laughs> crash course right there but that's exactly how it works Uh, and guys if you're listening if they don't raise your pay you didn't get a promotion you heard it here yeah Yeah, well realistically like if somebody books me on a stand-up show and they're like you are you know the the lord of stand-up now i'd be like okay uh you're not paying me that's fine as long as you proclaim that i am right this thing (laughs) like i mean i guess i'll put it on my resume but like how much is this really gonna help me out here (laughs) i'm still just loving this idea of all these tailors getting together calling themselves knights and being like, but you can't tell anybody. (laughs) (laughs) Like they're forming a justice league or something. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) absolutely. It it feels to me that it was mostly like, don't tell your wives, you know, (laughs) that's what it is. It's not don't tell anybody. It's just like, don't tell women, please. They're witches. You know, those guys were getting hammered at those meetings. (laughs) A hundred percent. Yeah. This is a weird period of strength in secret societies too, where it was like, because I mean, so many people knew about this, but you had so many founding members of government in these secret societies that it was very much like, hey, you know what? Why don't we make a secret society? And like, who's going to be in it? I don't know, Ernie, but (laughs) it, it was... Just call it secret society. We're going to pretend this is a thing. And people got really invested in this. Secrets were really easy to keep back then. You could have a whole other family 15 minutes away and no (laughs) one would ever know. Like those never the paths would cross. Yeah, that's a good point, too, is like they made secret societies were such a big deal because this was just remarkably easier to do. It was like all you had to do was show up and maybe only talk about it a little bit because like what? Maybe three people are going to hear about it. Nobody's nearby. Nobody's going to know anything. All right. I'm disillusioned on secret societies right now. Yeah, (laughs) totally. I was just going to add to that and say like it's it's just like isn't that just the same as only inviting a few people to drinks? Right. Difference, yeah. You dork. But if you come up with a cool name yeah. and be like, it's yeah. a secret, it's fun. Yeah. Technically, hanging out alone is a secret society. This is not as big a deal as we would say. Yeah. yeah, but then it's not just a few drinks. Yeah. Oh, is that too much? Is that, is that, as, okay. 
as long as you name it, it counts. I think is the point of secret societies. So <laughs> we we've got this no longer secret knights as well as the NLU and. They're working because they're keeping this separate, except the knights keep kind of crossing over into NLU territory. The knights started carrying out strikes and organizing along industrial lines. And uh, the National Trade Unions demanded the knights stick to reform. And when they refused in like this power move, they just went like, oh, OK, how about we just join together? Maybe <laughs> we're just going to be the American Federation of Labor now, like the weakest pushback in history. But because they didn't have this attack on two fronts anymore, the new federation had much less focused on labor reform. The emphasis was now on a powerful trade union force, which it believed to be the only way to counter the strength of the massive industrial growth. And this was basically a period of misunderstanding Marx. And this this led to a lot of issues later on where the Marx ideology was obviously focused on the concept of there is going to be an eventual revolution. We need to be prepared for this development. But they were simplified to the concepts of we need to create a strong force that takes care of itself and then end of story, we're taken care of, now it's over. And this obviously didn't really work and this was obviously a, a period of great power for Marx and, and those that were leading this studied him. Uh, you know, they, they, they thought they had an understanding of this, but it led a lot of these unions down the wrong path to begin with where it was just, there wasn't a consolidated ideal for what the end goal needed to be, in part because people needed change now. And small concessions meant that uh, it allowed the unions to to claim a win, for people to be in slightly better conditions, but it gave up negotiating power in the future. So unions lost a lot of their bite pretty quickly because of this shift. It is hard also to like, I mean, like collective bargaining is really tricky because, I mean, we, we just won, the Writers Guild just won this years long battle between writers and agents. And, you know, everybody has a different idea of what a strategy is. It's like having, you know, if you, if you have a bunch of people that are all, you're all working towards the greater good, but it's like, if everyone is the coach, right. you know, <laughs> then it's like, what's the That's play? a really good way to put it. Right. And, and there is disagreement on what the greater good is here. What are the goals? What, and especially when you have to be negotiating from a position of what do we think we can actually get out of yeah. this? How hard can we push before we're just losing, before they cut bait? And there is a lot of risk uh, in, in these strategies. Absolutely. We had that with the, I mean, not that this is the only labor movement in the country, but like back to the writer's guild, just because it just, it just came to an end like a month ago after years when we started out. So just to fill anyone in that's listening. So there's the, the writer's union, the TV writer's union, and then there's the uh, agencies. And what was happening was your agent is supposed to negotiate contracts on your behalf in and in your best interest. So they're supposed to fight for the most money possible for you, their client. That's that's the whole deal. That's what the whole relationship is supposed to be. So, but what was happening was all these agencies were getting really big and they were doing packaging deals, which was giving them a cut of the production money, which put them in direct conflict because it's like, if they're the producers, then it's, and they're getting money from the production end, then it's in their best interest to pay us a lower wage. So it's like, you can't trust that they're doing good faith deals anymore, you know, and this had been going on for years and the Writers Guild finally pushed back against it. And I mean, the entire entertainment industry was like, there's no way, there's no way the writers are going to win this. The agencies are too powerful. There's too much money behind it. And like, you know, the guild stuck, writers stuck together and the guild told everyone to fire their agents and they did. Yeah. yeah. And then what's crazy is like, it, 
felt like more people got work because yeah. it was just writers <laughs> getting other writers work. Yeah, just on the outside kind of looking in, I just saw so many people just kind of reaching out like, hey, I'm I'm hiring for this or hey, just so you know, I, I know of this opening, DM me. And like it was just people in the guild were looking out for each other. And it was Absolutely. it was really awesome to see. It was really amazing. And yeah, I mean, I, I've got friends, too, that said, look, I, I love my manager. They have actually done right by me all the time. And I'm dropping them because we realized the only way this works is through the collective bargaining. And it was incredible how writers came together on this and pushed through. Because like you said, this was a long battle. Yeah. And it's also really scary if you're like, you know, that's your bread and butter is writing for TV. Right. That's all your income. And you have to fire your agent who is ha, has been your pipeline to income. Right. It's like, oh, yeah. shit. <laughs> it's a terrifying move. Yeah. And I, I think it is one of those things, too, when you realize how how this is, is done, that it involves people in the riskiest position to begin with to put everything on the line. You know, it's, it's not those that have a nest egg that are, are at risk here. The, the people that, that run the companies are going to be fine. You know, it's just how much they, they want to give in. So it's it's really incredible how often workers have come together and pushed back through this and taken huge risk to realize that, you know, what we're getting here is not acceptable. And it was fantastic what, what writers did here. And yeah, uh, watching them support each other in this too was realize look we are all out of a pathway in here but we all know each other we all know a really good writer who'd be perfect for this job and the fact that they were able to come together i think what was so cool about that was it showed oh there there is a way we can do this if it turns out that we can manage this i i think it it showed those in positions of power like oh if if they can do it without us we kind of need to get back in there <laughs> Because obviously it's easier with managers, but it's not going to be too long before you find a way to do it all on your own. Oh, absolutely. I totally, I think so. Because it, it, it also feels like a, such a made up nonsense job. Right. <laughs> you know? Your job is basically like somebody will call me to call you. And it's like, right. there's an easier way to do this. Yeah, absolutely. But here's the thing. All y'all stuck together, which is why it worked. But the problem with these early labor movements call back to the history is uh <laughs> they were not inclusive at all all the work was divided uh, along racial lines mm -hmm. uh it was uh ethnic gender divisions so in their whole system they never achieved over like 10 percent of the labor force as their unions which is what hurt them right andrew yeah no i mean this this was was significant and also a, a large part was that it, it was developed along wage lines and obviously when racism and sexism is a huge issue in the country, wage lines are going to follow race lines and gender lines. So it just enforced this position of those that already didn't have power, had no way to get it. And yeah, as one said, it was it was this no more than 10%. And it was also unsure of its political position. It kind of went back and forth between this like, we want to support socialist ideals, but let's be honest, they're not going to get in a position of power here. They tried to create a separate arm uh, so that they could have people dealing with DC without it being directly to you know the main labor union's force. And it just kept not working. They didn't have a clear tie. And eventually they, they realized that they needed to get more clear support from the government and basically alliances with parties uh, that, you know, look, we have a lot of power here. We have a lot of votes behind us. We give that to you if you support us. But it was it took them far too long to figure that out. So when attempts at nonpartisan strategy failed, as it had in the 1800s and again in, uh, before World War II, we had in the 1920s, they developed this independent political strategy, first in the campaigning of the Conference for Progressive Political Action in 1922 and 1924 with the endorsement of uh, Robert Lafayette on the progressive ticket. But 
you've got Herbert Hoover and his hardline approach and his work to resolve crisis in mining and railroads meant it was just shut down. They lost power. They lost all strength they had behind them. And they didn't really come back until the Great Depression, until the Depression and just the absolute necessity for support here. When you want to tell us a little bit about the Great Depression? I mean, it looked like a good time. Yeah, yeah I mean, <laughs> it was it was a party. I mean, look, you're coming off the roaring 20s and everyone knows you get that anxiety after, which is basically yeah. what the Great Depression <laughs> was, right? Uh, so in 1938, the uh, Congress of Industrial Organizations was formally established. By the end of World War II, more than 12 million workers belonged to unions and collective bargaining had taken hold throughout the industrial economy. So it blew up big, uh, not only after the Great Depression, but World War II was huge because of production. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the the level of growth in America at this time brought America to, you know, obviously the, the superpower status that, that it claimed for so long. And this was a period of great development. And we can go back because there's a lot that happened in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s up until the Reagan era. But there was also a major development at this time in Jimmy Hoffa, and the Teamsters. And this is so significant. The role he played in this just cannot be overstated. And obviously, we, we were talking before this about The Irishman, obviously covering a, a lot of this story. But it's not like that was the only movie about Hoffa. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, his level of influence on the entire country at this time was huge. We've got notes, but I also just want to talk a little bit about general opinions here on Hoffa because he is so divisive. And I personally go back and forth because you read some accounts and it's like, okay, but this isn't okay, right? But also it's like, yeah, but how else was he going to get it done? <laughs> and it is so hard to get a firm position on Hoffa. That's the thing. I'm like, I, I'm i team Hoffa always. I love sure. team Hoffa. And I, hard say. <laughs> yeah, and the thing is, it's like, look, this sounds fucked up, but sometimes violence is the answer. <laughs> 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 like... I think that I don't, you know, I think of him as somebody that like, he, you know, really fought for workers and the companies, the companies he was fighting against were using all these dirty tactics. And I mean, they would like, you know, if people refused to work, they would just like drag them out of their trucks and beat them. So Jimmy Hoffa was like, well, fine, we'll beat you too. It, like, it, yeah. you know, it's like... <laughs> There's only there's only so much you can accomplish with kindness if you're being like literally beaten down by a company. And then it, you have to be like, you know what? Fine, we're fighting back and you're going to fucking regret it. Yeah. <laughs> Look, Jenny Hoffa fought dirty, but I do believe he was actually acting in workers best interest. This is a guy who, when he was 18 years old, uh, organized his first strike for dock workers to get yeah. paid a better wage. Like that was that's just part of his legacy. He started out running and then uh and then he got involved with the teamsters and the teamsters uh were truckers uh the international brotherhood of truckers that uh for the united states and canada and he was elected to be head of the teamsters and he hit the ground running i mean he really worked hard and got some great things done for for the teamsters i mean that's a it's a huge part of his legacy yeah he was violent i'm yeah. glad for it you know like <laughs> i don't <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, where would we be? It's yeah, and I I think one thing that he said outright too, because you know he he had the mafia ties is where a lot of the, the debate is, and he really just said outright they are hiring thugs to beat us. What are we supposed to do? And also, why is everyone suddenly upset when we're using the same tactics? Also, the companies we're fighting are aligned with the mobsters. The government that's attacking us for this also have mob ties. 
So why is it an issue that we're doing it? There seems to be this kind of um, sentiment in America that like, and I think it's divided on like on economically where like, if you're rich and you're doing bad shit, it's like, ah, that's, you know, rich people wiling out. That's what they yeah. do. Right. They're so silly. <laughs> you know, like where if poor people do bad shit, then it's like these animals. And it's like, right. are you kidding me? They're fighting back. This is this is retaliation. It's not they didn't incite it in the first place. It's like if you had treated people well to begin with, we wouldn't be here. Yeah. No, and actually, my only issues with Hoffa were really just in level of mob association. I actually don't disagree with his tactics. I think this was the right move at the time because a show of force was the only thing that could have gotten a response. And here's the thing that that because there were violent aspects People don't talk as much about how absolutely brilliant Hoffa was yes. as an organizer and as a strategizer. I mean, in 20 years, he took the Teamsters from 75,000 members to over a million. Yeah, that's and a pretty made this, significant difference. Oh, yeah, yes. and, and made it the dominant force of unions in the entire country and also worked to unify the entire country. Before this, unions were fairly localized. Yeah, they were. it was a bunch of trucker unions in different areas, and he brought them all together. Yeah. Well, and I think that he saw that opportunity too. He was like, oh, well, this is your, you know, part of this transit system. You're, I don't know if I'm using that. I'm not using the right words, but you know, like everything's interconnected via transport. So obviously that's like, that's the best in to, you know, get it on a more national level. It was perfect. And, uh, and because of this, he was able to establish the same wages across the entire country. By the way, in the South at this time, they were paid so much less that the fact that he just linked everyone all at once to, to get equal pay was incredible. But he also had what seems like <laughs> a very obvious take, which was, hey, do you guys want stuff? Like literally anything you need us. Yeah. <laughs> you are the, we are the only way. How are you not going to pay us what we're worth if you want? Because you guys have businesses. You need the things to run your business. We, we are the linchpin of your systems. You got to do better here. And it was incredible that that threat wasn't enough. But I, again, with, with everyone being at risk, they still needed jobs. The, the opportunities to, to strike, to put everything on the line, you know, you can only do it so many times. And the way Hoffa timed things and even using his quick strikes, it was like, look, you're going to see in a day what happens if we're not here. Yeah. And look at what, what's happening right now. There is a block in the Suez Canal because one boat drew a dick in the ocean and then got stuck. <laughs> and they're losing... 10, by the way, I realize someone might not know about that. They looked at the GPS map and yeah, he just drew a dick in the ocean using by mapping it out and then got wedged in the Suez Canal and they are losing $10 billion a day. And That's hilarious. Honestly, it is incredible. Insane. You know, you know what? Bravo. Do it. Yeah. <laughs> Good for you, man. So, right. I mean, this is the level of impact of not being able to, to use transport. They're also like, I'm sorry, back to like his, I believe his first involvement or like the first strike he led I could be listen somebody might be out there with an encyclopedia right now and you're mad because I minced this <laughs> but he worked with the uh strawberry the, the group was called the strawberry boys and they were striking against Kroger and what the practice was when when Jimmy Hoffa joined at the time it was if you want if you want to drive a truck and you want to deliver groceries and goods or whatever you show up at Kroger and you just wait all fucking day to see if they have a delivery for you. That was the way to get work. And you get paid for zero of that time. So if you're there for 12 hours and 
they don't have any deliveries for you or they give them to some other guy, then you're just, you're just fucked. But that was the whole system. And, you know, so Jimmy Hoffa was like, absolutely not. We're, you're not <laughs> going to be sitting here all day, not making money. I don't think so. Yeah. And I just confirmed that the Strawberry Boys is definitely a real name for a crew. <laughs> I don't think it was his, I'm not sure if it was his first, but it's definitely. If it wasn't the first, it was a pivotal one. This it was a very violent one. Oh, for sure. This is like an early Hoffa album. This is this is some good stuff. This, <laughs> this is, is a the deep hits. cut. Yeah, yeah. This is a yeah. deep cut Hoffa. <laughs> this was was what he was so good at too. With when people that were too close to it. In in we, this is something we've ended up talking about a lot on this this podcast where something had to be invented for the first time that is so standard in our thinking now, we forget that it had invention. We talked about this, about how recently it was the novel came into existence. It was like, oh yeah, books were <laughs> had to exist in this form. And it was the same thing here where it was, these things are so obviously unfair, but it wasn't until Hoffa said there was a way to push back here that we can make this because everyone else was like, well, yeah, but this is just the way it is. I mean, it was almost like a level, an allegory of the caves level of disillusionment <laughs> where it was just <laughs> yeah. like, is there really an alternative alternative here we don't have to be treated like shit all the time it, it's it is funny because it feels like we're in some kind of vortex of the same kind of situation in american government where it's like yeah we just uh we don't get health care and there's mass shootings all the time and that's just how it goes and it's like what the fuck no right what are you gonna do <laughs> it's like trying to stop the rain i guess it's like stop this yeah Right. It's especially insane because you're you're right, because that complaint of what are you going to do is is so often coming from like the only people that can do something about it. You have the power to do something right now. And it feels very much like the hot dog. I think you should leave where it was. We're all looking for the guy who can do this. And it was you're the guy who can do this. You're you you can't you can't just stand on the other side of the line and pretend you're a victim of this, too. (laughs) And and which was what Hoffa pointed out. He said, look, this is us against them. They're the ones doing this to you. You have a very specific enemy here. We know exactly who we need to fight. Don't you want to do something about it? And his oration ability too, and his level of like, God, the charisma this man oh, had. Yeah. <laughs> he was the face of labor of the labor movement in America. Absolutely. We we're talking yeah. earlier about the Irishman about how Jimmy Hoffa was always kind of played as just like this little side character in American history. Yeah. Or like, or I, I think that it was, I, I love Martin Scorsese. Like, no, if if you're out there and you're listening, please. Mart, if you're listening, we're huge fans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Humongous fans. Uh, that being said, I wish I had written the movie because it felt <laughs> like it was presented the same way like Goodfellas was presented where it's like, here's this niche little corner of society. And it's like, no, like I came out of that movie and I was furious because I'm like, they did not set up how famous he was and I was saying this before we were recording but he was like the fucking pope like he was (laughs) that famous like everybody knew everybody in America knew who Jimmy Hoffa was you know like before he disappeared which we'll get into people were able to track his movement just because people were just like yeah I saw him here I saw him here because everyone knew what Jimmy Hoffa looked like because he was (laughs) super famous exactly which was incredible to to realize that I mean can you name anybody in that kind of position who is, is just basically fighting for your rights and you would recognize them on on the street i mean he didn't even 
have a government position. Right. That's the, no, that's he the was crazy just out there. thing. He was, he was essentially the Bugs Bunny to Robert Kennedy's <laughs> fun this entire time, too. I'm very confused by this analogy, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> Robert Kennedy was the attorney general uh, for a lot of this time. Yes. And he fucking hated Jimmy Hoffa so much. Can we also point out the nepotism law that had to be created <laughs> because Kennedy gets elected president and immediately names his brother? And then he's just like, I'm going to root out corruption. It's like, you got your <laughs> job right exactly. on your brother. Well, the brother. thing is, the whole, the, the whole, here's where I sound crazy. <laughs> Hit us. <laughs> I can see Lisa calming herself down I'm here, and so I'm so excited. excited for what's coming next. So this, you can see my face is just like turning red. I'm just like <laughs> so thrilled. So the book, The Irishman is, or the, the book, the movie, The Irishman is based on this book called I Heard You Paint Houses. It's my favorite book. Please go out and read it immediately. But, and it goes into more detail about Jimmy Hoffa's mob connections and Kennedy's mob connections. Right. And the thing is, the thing that pissed Jimmy Hoffa off was he got the union to back JFK because JFK promised him, he's like, listen, you get, you help me get elected. I got you. Like right. I'm taking care of you. That's a, that's a number one priority. And like the day he then he like, he gets an office appoints RFK. And the first thing RFK does is go after Jimmy Hoffa. And Jimmy Hoffa was like that motherfucker. Like to the, to the extent that <laughs> when, when, by the way, in the book, it lays out how Jimmy Hoffa was involved in JFK's assassination. That's, I'm just going to say that so I don't sound any crazier than I already say. It's there. It's right there. Okay. Yeah. I sound like an insane person. But when the president Kennedy was assassinated, Jimmy Hoffa, like that afternoon, gets to the union hall and they had the flags at half mast and he's like, fuck you, put it back up. <laughs> and they were like, uh, it's the president. And he's like, I don't give a fuck, put it back up. And I'm like, oh, yikes. Wow. <laughs> really oh, Hoffa. Wow. <laughs> That's cold. But he felt he was betrayed. I get the betrayal for sure. I'm just saying how much of a, like, look, a cinematically fantastic move. Like as a human <laughs> being, you're like, that's a little dicey. But if I saw it in a movie, I'd be like, fuck yeah, that rules. Because <laughs> I have a floating morality. Yeah. <laughs> right. yes. yeah me, me too. It's, a, it's on a spectrum. For real. <laughs> the level of fear Hoffa could induce, not for his violence, but but for his, his power, that when uh, the McClellan co Committee forms uh, in the Senate, and obviously Kennedy at, the, at this point, uh, Robert Kennedy, uses this to, to leverage himself to the attorney general position, they form to investigate the, the Teamsters. And again, JFK is getting elected in part because of his mob connections, whether you want to call it direct or through Hoffa, he's getting elected to this. And they're saying, OK, but the Teamsters have mob connections. It's like, it, we, they, they all do. You want to... Like, okay, if you want to be mad about this, but you're going to be mad everyone's doing it. So McClellan Committee takes down Beck, who's the president of the Teamsters, and Hoffa steps up. And Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, does not realize how badly he fucked up right away. <laughs> but a few years later, it hits him and he speaks about how he regretted this. He all of a sudden created an enemy he could not take down. And it just, it just wrecked him. And the, the way Hoffa dismantled him was beautiful. How is this not Bugs Bunny versus Elmer yeah. Fudd? You said you were confused <laughs> earlier, but this makes complete, like, Robert Kane is like tapping his phones and Hoffa's like picking him up, just like, hey, bud. Like, he's like yeah. doing this kind of cartoony <laughs> shit and it's hilarious in retrospect. Right. Oh, and that's it too. Robert Kennedy, he was using illegal wiretaps. See, I think the thing is, I think of Hoffa as more like the Tasmanian devil. Fair enough. <laughs> 
just he's just like get the fuck out of my way i'm coming in <laughs> i love this this is such a, i love this this episode is fantastic it was it was great and the stuff hoffa did to take them down was it was just fantastic and he all this time he's obviously directing power to the right places the the unions uh, the other unions although want to kick the teamsters out they say it's obviously disagreement with the methods but i think it's also just the fact that the teamsters are taking the brunt of this investigation and it, and it behooves them to distance themselves at this point the big part of the investigation by the way i think we should say what the scheme was that they're trying to break up and oh, it's yeah, fucking beautiful it's a chef's kiss kind of thing uh the mob needs money and banks won't loan it to them however <laughs> the teamsters have a shit ton of money in their pensions that nobody's touching until they retire so hoffa gives the mob that money at a huge interest so the mob takes that money. No, sorry. I'm the, but I'm like, who gives a fuck that he's lending the pension money to the mob? The return on the money is enormous. It's more money for the union. Exactly. It's right. It's going to the workers. Also, the mob does this too. Except they do it to break legs and help yeah, nobody. Who gives a shit? Also, if you think the mob is more predatory than the United States government, you're asleep. That's insane. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> this episode fucking rules. I love it. Yeah. So bad. It's such a great, it's such a great plan. And I agree with it wholeheartedly. All of I read all the notes. I, I watched the documentary a little bit earlier today and I was like, yeah, this makes sense. And it's a great plan. I don't like. I'm, I'm right. sorry. I'm on Hoffa's side here. This is 100%. Yeah. This is going so well for Hoffa, <laughs> yes. which brings us to the point of the show. Lisa, where did it go wrong? I will tell you where it went wrong. Uh, <laughs> it went wrong with Jimmy Hoffa's ego and his temper because he could not bring himself to shut the fuck up. He could not. And that's what got him killed. By the way, went wrong. I don't, I don't think the thing, I don't think his tactics were wrong. What, what I, in my mind, what went wrong is he was killed. That's what went yeah. wrong. Yeah. And it was because he just wouldn't stop running his mouth. And he was fighting with all these mob guys that he was in with. And he, he was so powerful and he was so famous that I think, you know, I, I don't know if I was in the same position, if I would if I wouldn't also think I'm untouchable, you know? Yeah. So they ended up actually managing to bring him down. He was uh, convicted on March 4th, 1964 and sentenced to eight years in prison and fined $10,000. Uh, and he was out on bail for his appeal. And he was convicted in a second trial of July that year on account of conspiracy and three counts of mail and wire fraud. Very lame things to bring down Jimmy Hoffa, but I guess they got Al Capone for, what was right. it, for not paying syphilis? his taxes. Oh, uh, oh well, yeah, that, that was going to get, that was <laughs> always going to get him. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, this was the, the fraud for being the improper use of Teamsters Pension Fund. But again, he's not taking from his workers. To give to himself, he's taking from his workers to give them more money on a right. fantastic setup with the mob. It is yeah, a genius right. setup. Also like, it's like his long as long as the money is back in the bank when someone retires and needs their pension, what the fuck is the problem? Especially because this is, despite being the mob, a reliable source. This is a source that you know is going to pay the money back because they're going to do whatever it takes to get the money back. And it's also like... My like Chase Bank lends my money out. I mean, there's not a lot of it to lend. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like Chase Bank lends my money out 
so that they can make more money on it. So why why is that different? Because that's a corporation and the, the leaders of a corporation are making this money versus workers. Also like your, whatever, a separate thing, but like your money is only insured to like $200,000 anyway. And then everything beyond that, they're like, if we have a whoopsie, then <laughs> tough shit, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and you're right. I mean, this is, and I, I think that was one of the things with Hoffa was that he employed the exact same standards being used by people in power. The objection was just that he wasn't supposed to have that power. It was power that he was trying to give back to the workers, which is why it was so frustrating because it was this ridiculous double standard, which he just kept trying to point out that this is the exact same thing. You're, it's this, you're doing the exact same thing. Why is it wrong when I'm doing it, when you're doing it to help yourself and I'm doing it to help other people? Not that there wasn't personal gain for Hoffa as well, but he really looked after his workers. I know he said in the beginning that we had slightly differing opinions on, see, Lisa pitched the idea and I thought, this is great. And I wrote up myself on Hoffa and I thought, oh, I don't know if she's pro Hoffa or against Hoffa. <laughs> so I kind of hedged a little bit, like I like him, but just in case, but the more we talk about this, like, like, you know what? Fuck everyone who is not Hoffa. <laughs> Fuck everyone. You know, it's really hilarious too. I saw a friend of mine posting recently. She was saying, she was saying some anti-union things, which I should have drove, driven to her house and slapped her. Um, <laughs> but she was like, why does it have to be violent? Why can't it be, you know, like the labor union used to be? And I'm like, are you stupid? What? You are stupid. super violent, super right. duper violent. It used to be actually deadly, not just violent. Right. People, a lot of people died to get us a 40 hour work week. So, uh, you know, there's a, there's a, actually a holiday they made. Right. <laughs> we didn't discuss this at the time, but just because this is something I, I always feel is important to say, because people discuss the 40 hour work week and Henry Ford and my fuck you to Henry Ford could not be bigger. That this was something that is discussed in the labor movement and, and not always from the right perspective of that he realized he could make more money by creating Saturday as a weekend. This was not anything to look after the workers. This was entirely selfish. And also, uh, his, that was the next point, the raging anti-Semitism. I mean, his his actual influence on creating World War II was significant. The fact that in every car he was selling, he was putting anti-Jewish pamphlets in and it was required to be included in the car. They still put those in cars that they sell in the Midwest, you know? Is uh, <laughs> <laughs> Mostly at use car dealerships. <laughs> so th this was a, a point from earlier, but I think it's important to discuss because there is a discussion of like, oh yeah, but Ford did it. He looked after his workers. At no point was he trying to look after his workers. The people that actually looked after the workers, and yes, using some of the same tactics and and some that I disagreed with, for the most part, I realized it was what had to be done, were the people like Hoffa, where it was, it was actually, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to suffer with what you suffer. And it was always the people that were in the same mix that actually looked after the workers. Also, I think that, you know, if you you, if you're looking for proof that he was truly looking out for other workers, like he didn't live a crazy lap, lavish lifestyle. You know what I mean? Like he didn't live in a mansion with 20 cars or whatever. Like it's not like, you know, priests, uh, that run mega churches now that live in castles and they're like, right. I'm just trying to help the little guy. And it's like, man, who are you kidding? On your private plane? Are you? <laughs> yeah. Get out of here, Joel Osteen. <laughs> you know, the righteous gemstones is a documentary that's yeah that's, on, that's not debatable <laughs> yeah. but i mean jimmy hoffa was popular because he did all these things he was insanely popular he only served five years of that 13 year sentence because nixon in an effort to get elected pardoned him for his re-election campaign he pardoned hoffa with the expectation that those workers would be so grateful that they would then vote for him and it's true the teamsters went republican 
for that election because of it. However, he threw in the rule that Hoffa was not allowed to hold office in the union movement until 1980. So he was trying to keep Hoffa out of power while also reaping all of the benefits of being the president that pardoned Hoffa. This reminds me of another famously maligned, unfairly maligned figure, Tanya Harding, ladies and gentlemen, who got a, who got a sentence far beyond what she should have and was not allowed to skate ever again. We have a Tanya Harding episode. Oh, great. Go listen to that, everyone, because I'm going to as well. I can't I can't wait. We're, we're a little bit harder, but I actually agree with the sentence where it was the never skate. It was like, come on. Yeah, <laughs> but it's yeah. like, just bash her knees back or something. I don't know. <laughs> if a crowbar can break her knees, a crowbar can fix her knees. Everyone yeah. knows that. <laughs> For Christ's sake, the woman has no education. Let her ice skate that's all people have like people People, i said people and i just imagined people in tampa like that go skate at the mall there's like a never mind it's a whole thing it's like a niche part of my childhood okay i was in clearwater growing up i remember the mall yeah you know exactly what i'm talking about then that's that's a lot of people's thing it was a weird thing too because you go in and you're like is this a is this a mall with an ice rink in the Not like, like a regular, like, we're in Florida. Did you just put <laughs> ice in the middle of a mall for no reason? Yeah, they sure did, because that's a that's a career path for white trash. After yeah. I used to <laughs> fucking pro, so yeah. what can you do? Yeah, so Nixon put this uh, addendum on the pardon. Yes, he could not hold office in the labor movement until 1980. Now, Hoffa did sue uh, to try to get his position back. But he failed at that in court. So he was trying to seize kind of power through other ways, you know, backroom deals and things like that. But the mob at this point was kind of over Hoffa. They yeah, were actually, yeah, they're cooling on him. They're controlling more than they thought. They think Hoffa's getting too big of a head. And for somehow, who knows the exact way and reason, but on July 30th, 1975, Hoffa went out to a meeting with several of his mob ties and he never returned. Which (laughs) the level of conspiracy around this, too, it was like, you know what, if you're meeting mob people and then you never make it home again, we probably know what happened. Probably didn't get lost in a Walmart. (laughs) Right. But there is a lot of discussion about this, about whether or not the hit was actually sanctioned or whether or not it was supposed to be a just show him who's in charge and went too far. I believe what I've been told in this book. Yeah. <laughs> so you believe Frank Sheeran, uh, uh, the, oh, hit, I, I the believe, hit man. I believe Frank Sheeran more than I believe in God. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is zero. Uh, I do. I fully believe him. And the story goes that Hoffa just could not stop running his mouth. And then, you know, so the mafia guys that he was involved with were like, enough's enough. And Frank Sheeran tried so many times because he couldn't flat out say like, they're going to call a hit on you. He had to be like, hey, bud. Don't you think you should pull back on some yeah, of Yeah, you should reel this talking, in a little bit. You know? Yeah. But not subtle about it, too. Like, if you've been worked with the mob... You know what these messages mean. You you know you're in trouble here. Well, and Jimmy Hoffa was like, "Fuck them! I'll I'll kill them." But in, in right. like, he, was just, he was just like so. I think his temper got the best of him in the end, unfortunately, because I think he still had a lot of good to do. If we're going to go Frank Sheeran, and also I believe it, I believe it's probably Frank Sheeran. I was reading his testimony. He wasn't on trial. His deathbed confessional, and basically what he said was. 
Hoffa always rode on the in the front of the car. Like that was his, Hoffa's thing. So Sheeran, when they went to go pick up Hoffa, sat in the front of the car thinking that that would tip Hoffa off to not get into the car with these guys. And he got into the car with those guys and was never seen again. Wow. Yeah, well, because, and it was also like he, at that point, Frank Sheeran had been a hitman for the mob and for Hoffa for a long time. And this was his closest friend and confidant. And this is somebody he trusted more than anyone in the world. And that's that's the mob tactic. That's the whole deal. Hoffa's kid actually, Hoffa's son actually said there was no other person other than Frank Sheeran that if they were in the car, he would have, he, he would have been tipped off if, if anyone but Frank Sheeran was in that car. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, a, that's deliberate. And it's also... And look, here's why I sound insane again. Because who cares if it is a conspiracy theory, I'm not harming anyone by fully, <laughs> fully believing this 100%. But it's also a known mob tactic. To, this is I, I believe that Jimmy Hoffa and the mob were involved in JFK's assassination because it is a known mob tactic to hire an insane person to pull off a hit and then to have one of your own guys take out the insane person that did the hit because the ins- the insane person's just like thinking, oh, I'm going to get this big bag of money. And they are, to the mob, disposable. And they're like, we don't care. The one guy with the information, we're going to kill. So who gives a fuck? And then it's over. It's a solid mob tactic. I'm going to give credit to the mob. That's I'm adopting it myself. Yeah. <laughs> I'm amazed we haven't done a JFK episode yet. At least we're going to have to have you back to cover JFK. Oh, I would love to. <laughs> Yeah, please. I'm just like on for like all. You're like anything within like 1960s, you know, yeah. American history. I'm like, I'm back. Well, <laughs> Vietnam. Vietnam's the next one. We'll figure yeah. out a, the Creedence Clearwater Revival episode that we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, so this is basically the the Union and Hoffa history. Uh, he was declared missing, and and finally uh, they declared him dead in 1982. Of course, without a body. But yeah, that is the history of unions and Jimmy Hoffa, which brings us to our next session in their defense where one of us has to defend everything we just shit on for the past hour so here's the thing though most of that was positive what part do we have to defend here was it the mob murdering jimmy hoffa or was it jimmy hoffa talking too much (laughs) do we have to okay here's the thing jimmy was talking too much okay Mm -hmm. the mob had a very delicate ecosystem it can't be brought down (laughs) by someone did you just call it the mob ecosystem yeah this is such an (laughs) all right i'm with you i mean i agree but also i just love the beauty of this of this phrasing please i'm just saying uh hoffa knew all the names hoffa knew everything that was going on he did jail for five years to me, that says that Hoffa's not going to talk. So it might have been a clear overreaction uh, to kill him. <laughs> but here's, here's what we're saying. He was talking a lot. He was talking mad shit. And if you're the mob, I'm sorry, you're going to try to protect your assets as much as possible, even if it's not in the best interest of the union workers of America, because you're the mob and your morals are very flexible. And that is my defense of killing Jimmy Hoffa. And they, who, needs a, who needs a union when you're just like, robbing people yeah yeah, exactly (laughs) that's your income you know what i mean i think that you know it's it's also interesting that you know the labor movement that unions started as like these weird secret societies and jimmy hoffa was taken out by another fucking secret society it's just like men just have to be in clubs they can't (laughs) handle just being an individual they're like i gotta be in the scouts or who am i you know yeah uh which is pathological you're all sick uh (laughs) 
Agreed. This is why religion was invented. Anyway, that's another subject. Now I'm really, <laughs> now I'm really spiraling. Um, I, I will defend Jimmy Hoffa probably till the day I die. Yeah. Oh, you know, I was defending murdering Jimmy Hoffa, so I'm the bad, I'm the bad guy. Yeah. I don't know if I can defend that, but you know what? The mob doesn't like a loose cannon, and Jimmy Hoffa ultimately was a loose cannon. If we're pursuing the same they did what had to be done rule that we followed for a lot of justifying Hoffa's... <laughs> I, I get it, but I mean, I think basically the thing is, look, if you're following mob appropriateness, there was nothing inappropriate about this. The problem is the general humanity inappropriateness with murdering a guy who might talk about uh, your, your, uh, your misdeeds. Look, I'm just saying, if we're going to be all pro Hoffa and say he might've been involved in killing JFK, we have to understand that that might mean what goes around comes around and Hoffa's going to get murdered. That's that's just what we have to say. (laughs) If you've, yeah, if you've, if you set the rules for your own life, then yes, they obviously have to uh, apply both sides. But I think for my defense, I want to focus on the other aspect of Hoffa talking too much which is ultimately just that this was one of the most powerful people in the country. This, the sway he had was massive. And the way he lost that way, he went to prison thinking he could even hold on to it by kind of being a puppet leader for a little bit and then realizing that wasn't going to hold. It's like, yeah, he wanted to get the power back. Uh, he went back even to to the uh, Detroit uh, local 299 to see if he could build his way back up from the base again. And I get it. I get all of the attempt at obviously <laughs> at a certain point, you think he would have realized this is going to end in my death. But I'm not sure I disagree with that move either of he wanted to get back in. And I, I get was a man that could hold as much control and power as he did for believing he's untouchable. Yeah, I could see it. And I think in the end, I think ultimately he won because now his son is the president of the Teamsters. Which is amazing. There you go. Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, that that should pretty much cover it. There, There is in their defense, which uh, I think is very hard when we're discussing murder. But honestly, it still makes sense. Murder mostly makes sense. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> I think that wraps it up for us today. What do you guys I think? think? We yeah, it. I think I think that does it. Lisa Curry, thank you so much for joining us today. This was an absolute blast. It was wonderful seeing you again. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, Lisa. I'm so glad we've organized like five more episodes for you to come on <laughs> yeah. since this started. This is great. I'm just gonna get crazier and crazier. By the way, it's like it's not gonna get <laughs> like I'm gonna be Hunter Thompson by the end of this, and we could do an episode about him too. Uh- <laughs> I'm so Please. in on Hunter Thompson. Episode. Yes, I'm a yes, a hundred thousand percent. I read. <laughs> way too much Hunter S. Thompson in high school, which is yeah. just like a oh, you know, air motion jerk off kind <laughs> of, of course, thing of to course. that. <laughs> but but it's what I did. <laughs> so Absolutely fantastic. Well, we're going to look forward to all of these episodes. You know, I, like if I had my, lost my voice, we would film them all right now. Uh, but Lisa, thank you so much for being here. Everyone uh, listening, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to be back next week. We hope you will as well. If you uh, enjoy this, please subscribe and give us five stars. It helps us out so much. And as always, we have a Patreon down in the show notes. And yeah, we'll be back next week. I'll see you next week, Wen. Bye. 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 Bye.